but I wouldn't give up the lessons I learned, RJ, for $100 million. And I mean that literally. I would not, if you, if you could remove them from my brain and you could give me that cash, I would not accept that money uh, because those lessons are so important. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey guys, it's RJ Singh coming to you from Ultra Habits and I know I look and sound like shit so I want to keep it really brief today. My family and I have been sick for over a week, hemmed and huddled in this house so it's been really interesting times but we're here to introduce our next amazing guest on the show, Joel Neem. Now people that know Joel call him Thor. Now why does a man have such an amazing nickname? It's because he was an F-24 fighter pilot in the United States Air Force for 15 years. This is the real life maverick from Top Gun guys. The th <laughs> that was not lost upon me throughout the conversation. Now. Joel currently leads and heads an organization called Afterburner. They are a US-based organization, and what they do is they take their frameworks and systems that were learned in the high-pressure environments in the sky and help implement those into businesses all around the world with go-to-market strategy and execution. This is a conversation that is at the intersection of high performance in military and business. We dive deep into his personal life as well, where Joel and his son, JJ, were actually diagnosed with cancer at the same time, and they both moved and recovered through that, but he had some really big epiphanies and some profound realizations on the back of that experience that resulted in a book called Survivor's Obligation. Now, this is a dynamic conversation, guys, one that you don't want to miss. Hope you enjoy it. Let us know your feedback, what we could do better, what you love, what you don't. Again, this show is for you and your performance. Welcome, Joel Neeb, or shall we call you Thor, to the Ultra Habits show. Before we jump into all the serious stuff, I need to know what's life like when you're called Thor? Like, how cool is that? <laughs> you know what? Everybody gets a call sign in, uh, in the fighter pilot world, and it, it's a great way for us to create a community, and it's so pervasive that we often don't know each other's first names, RJ. We'll, we'll have something called First Name Friday, where as you're walking through the hallway, you have to call each other by their by your first name. If you don't, you got to put $5 towards charity. We'll raise tons of money because people will be walking down the halls stumbling over names. But what it's like to be called Thor. So I love the call sign Thor. I thought that was super cool when I got it, but they're all cool. In the Air Force, we're really good about giving each other cool call signs. But here's the thing. It has to be based off of a super embarrassing story. And so it's, you know, it's, it's got to sound cool, but equally embarrassing is this inner knowledge among the group about what you did to earn it. And, uh, and yeah, it's, so it's a little fascinating how the origin starts. So does someone, I mean, is, is there like a time and place that the name is developed? Like, because I would imagine every fighter pilot has a nickname. And so is it like, is there some protocol around when you get that nickname and the timing of it? Yeah, it's, it's your first fighter squadron. It's typically three to four months into your journey. So you're a new wingman. You've already right. been flying this plane for a year in training. Now you've gone to be an operational fighter pilot with the squadron. And up until this point, they really don't know that much about you. So they wouldn't want to name you without having stories about you. But here's what happens. As you make boneheaded mistakes and, and maybe act like a goofball at the bars on the weekend or you know get some story about you, 
over time, we'll write all those stories down in a, on a board in our vault where the top secret stuff is. And so we'll amass a long laundry list of things and stories. For, so when it is naming night, we'll be able to reflect back on that and, uh, and give them a proper name. There you go. Maybe, maybe we can do that in the corporate world, part of our acing, I suppose. But what, what I'm going to do now is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot and, and go to a more serious part of, of your story. Now, you are an author. You wrote a book called or you co-wrote a book called Survivor's Obligation. And the crux of the, the story is kind of on the back of this major life altering event in 2010, which actually impacted yourself and your son, JJ. Can you step us through what happened then? Yeah, so in 2010, I was on top of my world. Everything was going great. Um, I was, I'd been a fighter pilot for about 10 years. I was an instructor pilot at this point, uh, teaching in, in the training program for the, for the Air Force. And I felt great. I was auditioning to be one of the newest uh, Air Force Thunderbird pilots, uh, like the Blue Angels for the Navy. And I, was, uh, I, I, was, I had this pervasive kind of ache in my body uh, on a scale of one to 10 in pain. It's like a two. And so I kept going to the doctors about it. And it turns out, long story short, is I had cancer, and not just cancer, but stage four cancer, uh, and given a really poor prognosis. And then you asked about my son, too. Unbelievably, I don't, I don't even tell this part of the story every mm-hmm. time, just because I think people are just like too taken back. Like, how could both happen at the same time? But we discovered a tumor in my son's lung at the exact same time. Within a six-week time period, we went from the picture of good health to both of us having massive surgeries and just craziness, me doing chemo and everything else you can imagine. It really, it really frames the fragility of life, doesn't it? And the false perception yeah. we have about security, especially in the Western world where with our curated life and, you know, uh, comfort. So look, what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll take it back to how your whole journey started in the Air Force, right? So one of the things that was really interesting was you were talking about when you were a young kid, you were wayward and you had this kind of moment of clarity or maybe this period of clarity where you realized that the air force or the military would give you a level of discipline that you required. Now, for me, those are pivotal moments in, in our lives. Can you talk about how that whole thing unfolded and where were you at? What, what were you doing as a young person? And then how you made that decision to, to call yourself on your shit effectively and, and, and make that dip, difficult decision to go into the military. It's not an easy yeah. decision. Great question. So in, in high school, I started off the high school journey uh, in, in a really positive way at a 4.0 through sophomore year. Everything was going great. But the challenge for me is I really didn't have any friends. I didn't have a social presence whatsoever. I just didn't have a, a network of friends for whatever reason. It's particularly in middle school, that didn't come easy for me. And so, uh, and, and I threw myself into my studies at this time. So freshman through about halfway through sophomore year, I, I just, you know, I wasn't clicking uh, with, with folks. And then, uh, and then, things did start to take off from a social perspective. And I did, I was able to make more of an emphasis on that. And I started going down the wrong path in, in terms of trying to do anything to impress this crowd that I, that all of a sudden became really important in my life. And, and things were all of a sudden going really well. And I, and I went from 
the, the, the big nerd to the homecoming king and, and all sorts of, you know, just massive transformation. But along with it, I changed my priorities. And so long story short, I wasn't a drug addict. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't the worst version of a high schooler you can imagine, but I definitely had a massive uh, cheating scandal that I was a part of, uh, cheating on an AP test. And myself and three other individuals got caught doing that and had a huge meeting with all of our teachers and just talked about the, how the, it was a tale of two high school experiences for me. The first two years started great. The second two years were down a really slippery slope. And I just had to reconcile what what this meant for my future. Because up until this point, I really clearly identified what I wanted to do in college. And, and, and I started questioning whether I had the internal discipline and fortitude to make the right decisions. I clearly hadn't up until this point. My question became then, well, can I create it quickly, quickly enough to get into the right college and then stick it out in the right college? And I was self-aware, I think, enough and had others tell me uh, that probably not. I need some external discipline in order to get there. And there's probably my, my first big lesson in life is there's nothing wrong with making that uh, making that uh, clear to yourself. In other words, I think one of the, the things that we tell young people that's a mistake is, oh, you can be anything. You go to a graduation address, high schools across the world are graduating right now, and you have every commencement speech is, the sky is the limit, you can be anything, do anything you want to do. That's BS. You, you can do anything you want to do. You certainly can't do everything you want to do, but in order to do anything you want to do, you have to follow a very structured, disciplined path to get there. And that's the piece that we kind of neglect. We think that everybody's going to end up like Zuckerberg and go start Facebook and, you know, anybody can do anything because we have one data point that says a person did this uh, in history and, and it just doesn't exist. So for me, that structure was the military and I didn't know what I was embarking upon with, uh, with going to a military service academy, but I knew it was going to at least stop me from making some bad mistakes in the short term. That's a really interesting point, Joel, and something that I recognize as being um, very American since I've left the US and I'm living in Australia. I think one of the beauties of the American culture, it's a very aspirational culture. Um, it's part of the founding fathers and how the country was created. I think one of the downsides is, yes, you can be anything you wanna be, but it comes with X, Y, Z, right? right. And I think that's gotten lost um, slowly over time. And I completely wholeheartedly agree with you. So. You then go into the military. Did you have a fascination with aviation? And how did you then go from joining the military to becoming an F-15 pilot, man? Like, what's that, what's that story? Yeah, it's kind of an embarrassing story because here I was, now I'm at the Air Force Academy and I'm surrounded by people who have dreamed of this moment their entire lives. And they have all the planes memorized and they knew mm -hmm. when they were, you know, in seventh grade, they were going to go to the Air Force Academy and they and they visited it three times. I'd done none of that. I didn't know. I To me, every plane was either a C-130 or an F-16 because it was either a big fat plane or it was a fast plane. And so I was constantly mixing them up and, and getting eye rolls from the from the classmen around me who had spent their entire lives paying attention to this. And so, uh, and so, it was embarrassing. I was I wasn't there for the same reasons they were. But then, as I got more exposure to flying and um, and through you know just aviation concepts and through all the training and academics I got at the academy, it, it definitely piqued my interest. And of course, you know we talked about it earlier. Top Gun was was a big part of our childhood, and and nobody got through that time period thinking that not wishing that they were a fighter pilot. So there, there's certainly that element to it as well. Yeah, it's really interesting. So you went there and evolve into a pilot, not necessarily having a vision your whole life of flying, which one would think person that ends up in an F-15 would have had. And one of the interesting pieces of that was you talked about fear in a, in a previous interview. And I think that you've got a very good frame 
of reference for it. Because I think a lot of people make this commentary that fear and your ability to deal with fear is something that's innate. And you right. challenge that, right? You, you actually, there was a comment there that behind the wall of fear is greatness. Can you talk about how you had to negotiate fear given it looks like you got into being a pilot, not as some natural thing that you would have kind of dreamed of from a young age where you had this, uh, you were climatized to, to wanting to fly, but it was something that evolved and you had to deal with the fears and those primal fears. Can you talk a little bit about that more in depth, Joel? Yeah, absolutely. So it, for me, it comes down to the fact that I, I truly believe fear is our friend. In other words, fear very often points us in the direction that we should go. And I don't mean like fear of, you know, falling from a high height or something, you know, the, the natural survival fears that we have built into us, that, that's, that, that of course is uh, there for a very good reason and we should pay attention to it. But a lot of our fears are irrational. A lot of our fears are just barriers that we put in the way because we are preserving our sense of security against taking a chance in the unknown, particularly against something that we really want to do. So in other words, when, when people will ask me, you know, how do you find your purpose in life? Now that I'm at this point where I'm, you know, that's, that's, I have a lot of conversations about helping corporations find their, their true purpose and individuals do it. The, the conversation always goes back to, well, it was easy for you. You were a fighter pilot. And of course you found your purpose. I mean, that's the, who wouldn't be inspired flying upside down and, you know, taking on missions, for fighting bad guys and stuff. And I'll say, yeah, sure. I get it. But you have something you're passionate about as well, but you probably guarded off behind fear. My, my next question for that individual is what would you do if you weren't afraid? And that, that comes from the book, Who Moved My Cheese? Really quick read if, if anybody wants to read a phenomenal book. But I use that quote all the time because I think it's one of the most powerful things to say to somebody else. And if you say that, that phrase to somebody and just pause, I mean, I've seen people get brought to tears just from that question because they already know the answer. And all of us, as soon as I say that, everybody listening thought of something and thought, if, if I finally was not afraid, I would do this. Well, that is the answer to your better life. Everything that we want out of life is on the other side of some fear and is within some discomfort. That's the piece that we got to get our minds wrapped around that the, the path to discomfort always has pain and our path to success rather always has pain and discomfort. And people say, well, why would I voluntarily go through that? You're already voluntarily going through pain. You can, you're going to go through pain no matter what. You either do what is hard now and your life will be easy or you do what is easy and your life will be hard. There's hard either way. That's the part that people forget. Like you're just postponing the pain when we take shortcuts with ourselves. Yeah, beautifully said. And I'm a big believer in crucibles, which I know you'd be familiar with, self-imposed crucibles. I think, I think we need to implement difficulty intentionally to stretch us. And that's if you're performance orientated. It's not a life. I've, I've learned that not everyone, it's not a life for everyone, is it? Really? No. So, yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're 10 years into your career. You're going to join the Thunderbirds, which is effectively the equivalent of the, the Blue Angels. You get this cancer diagnosis. And there was a, a real pivotal awakening mo moment that I got from your story during your cancer journey where you're driving down to Houston. Now, let's talk about that drive. There was a real roller coaster of emotions and you yeah. had a, an epiphany. Can you talk about that, that, uh, that trip? 
Yeah, so that's about six months into my cancer journey, or six weeks rather, into my cancer journey. And you gotta understand where I was at this point. So I'm gonna kind of paint the picture emotionally for what's taking place in those six weeks. So I get the diagnosis initially that it's it's possibly cancer. And so I go from the picture of good health, everything's going right to, great to it's possibly cancer and the tumor in my son's lung is growing. Uh, I go back and I find out that, okay, it is cancer. They do surgery and they say, not only is it cancer, but it's stage four cancer because it's spread to all these other organs and it's in your lymph nodes and you have an 18 month uh, uh, lifespan ahead of you. That, that's how long they, they expected me to live. Uh, and then I go through the next month as a zombie and just effectively like staring at the ceiling fan. I'll never forget watching the ceiling fan over my bed spinning because I've watched it for hours at night as I'm just trying to process my end of life, my, what's my son's going through, my, what my family's going through. And I just prayed for the light so I could stop being alone dealing with this by myself. And then the daylight would come and I was a zombie and, and super tired. So I'd be praying for darkness so I could go back to sleep and, and you know, try it again. And the whole cycle would start over again. And so I was just this, in, in, in a period of six weeks, physically worn out, exhausted, everything's going terrible. And now I'm headed out to Houston, San Antonio to Houston, where I live. San Antonio is about a three hour drive. I'm, I should be elated because this is the place that I really tried hard to get access to. It has the best doctors. It gives me my only fighting chance uh, at, at, you know, at least living a little bit longer with this cancer. And yet, as I'm driving to this hospital, I have this immense feeling of dread that's weighing over me the entire ride. And it just gets worse and worse and worse as we're driving along. And I got my whole family in the car, and I can't put my finger on, on why I feel this way. And we finally dropped me off, and now I'm feeling like I'm having an anxiety attack as I'm walking in. And, and for some reason, this dread is just you know really weighing on me. And I look at this building, this hospital, and I realize as I'm looking at the hospital as I walk into it, why I'm so concerned. It's because this is the building that I'm going to die in. And I'm walking into the place in one of these windows in the next 18 months, I'm going to take my last look out. And I try to stay so positive up until this point and just try to be strong for my family. Half the time when you have cancer, you're just being strong for other people and trying to put on a brave face and, and then retreating and, and putting on your regular face. And I just couldn't do it anymore. And so I stared up and I closed my eyes and I just kind of got mad at God. And I said, God, I don't deserve this. I've done everything I should have. I've taken care of myself. I'm 33 years old and I've, I'm a fighter pilot and I'm taking care of my family. My son shouldn't be going through this. I shouldn't be going through, through this right now. You need to heal me right now. And I tear streaming down my face. I'm sure I look like a wreck. And I opened up my eyes and I locked eyes with another person. And it was a little girl and she was being wheeled into the hospital and she was looking right at me. And I'll never forget, she had beautiful blue eyes and a bald head and a surgical mask on. And in her eyes, as her dad wheeled her in at only 10 years old or so, I could see that she was afraid. And the next moment was my transformative piece of my life. I lost every sense of self-pity, everything that I felt the moment before, all of the woe is me, God, you need to fix this commentary was gone. And it was replaced with this sense of... God, I'm the most blessed person in the world. I'm 33 years old and I have a beautiful family and I'm a fighter pilot living every boy's dream. Don't help me help her and heal her. And then she went into the hospital and the doors closed behind her. And I was just left there like trying to process what just happened. It's an interesting one. That might've been God's answer to you, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that's actually how I look at it, RJ. That's, that's really intuitive. So he, I asked him to heal me and he healed me not in the way I wanted. I had many more surgeries after that. I had a long road to go, 
but he healed me in the way I needed the next second. It was an instantaneous answer to my prayer. Uh, and of course I didn't continue fully process that until later, but mm. that's what I believe it was. So you're in, uh, you're in the, the cancer ward and you're with all these other patients and like, I, I put myself in your shoes. Like, you know, you're, you really are at the edge of life and death, right? Because you're in these rooms getting kind of group chemo. People are not there next week and you guys probably aren't talking about it, but you know what's happened. And you guys start talking about what you're going to do when you get out. And this seems to me where you start to get that next level of, of realization that moves you into that survivor's obligation uh, mindset. Can you talk a little bit about that whole process when you were there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the experience I had with a little girl that that helped me to decide that I'm never going to feel sorry for myself again. And I really take that to heart. I think about it every day. Every time I get into a bad situation now, uh, I just remind myself like this isn't that big of a deal. Stop, stop paying attention to the, the, the pain points in life and look at the, the great things that you have going on. And it's and it's made all the difference. Gratitude really transforms everything. But it wasn't until I was with the, the men and women that were also fighting cancer in this chemo room that survivor's obligation came up. And here's how it happened. It's exactly like you said, we go into this room and you see men and women in their finest hour. And here's what I mean by that. They are rising to the occasion of a fight. They never expected a fight. Many of these people thought of themselves maybe as a little bit weak or you know somebody that is certainly not the one who would stand up and do a fight for their death. And yet here they were. And I saw them in all their glory. And it was just an incredible moment to share with another human being and see them that way. A part of that is that they're super optimistic. Every person in that room is saying what they're going to do when they get healthy. doesn't matter if you have a 10% survivability or 99% survivability with your cancer, you're still talking about how you're going to get healthy because you just have to be that way. And it was really positive. And I was, I was really uplifted by it and inspired by it. But then, as you said, you come back the next week and somebody wasn't there. And it wasn't always because they died. A lot of times the treatment wasn't working and it's on the path to palliative care and just making them comfortable uh, for the last chapter, which and you start processing all of this and just thinking about all the people that you met along the way. And then finally, when this is getting to the point where I feel like cancer may be in the rearview mirror, I'm finishing up with my chemotherapy and oh my gosh, I'm one of the very few that escaped this cancer. They gave me a, a survivability rate at five years of only 15%. Uh, and, and for survivability beyond that, even smaller. And, and I say it, and I didn't have what doctors call survivor's remorse or survivor's guilt. Really common experience where on the other side of something that you survive and others don't, you feel guilty about it and you actually bring on a depression, right? didn't have that at all. I was elated. I couldn't believe I got a second chance here and that I was had another shot at life and I wasn't going to squander it. I didn't have survivor's remorse, but I did have what I call survivor's obligation. And that is, I have an obligation to carry out everything I said in that room that I was going to do because I'm living the second chance that every single one of those people would have given anything to live today. And uh, I'm not going to take that lightly. Mm. It's an extraordinary story. And, and I suppose JJ came good throughout that process as well. Was that timeline aligned with your getting better as well? Or was, did that take a little bit longer or shorter? No, his was shorter because he had massive surgery to remove most of his left lung and they right. removed it and they were able to isolate this tumor. It was completely out of him. And now he didn't have to do chemo or anything. Now he's just on the path to recovering from big surgery. And, uh, and we caught it early enough. We actually inc incidentally caught it with, a, with another x-ray where they're looking at something else and they just happened to capture this thing in his lung. And, and so we were very, very lucky to capture it at that point. 
I saw him climbing the monkey bars. I think it was him or was it a different kid of yours? Do you got monkey so bars? Do it. Yeah, we, we got the Ninja Warrior impressive, set in the backyard. Man. That yeah. was impressive. I liked it. That's that. Yeah, I was like, I told my wife, we got to get a setup like that, man. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. I was actually just taking, we were doing some work here at the house and doing the home office thing where the whole office came by and hung out. And uh, we were all outside doing the salmon ladder right before you called. Isn't it crazy how when you get, just to digress for a second, when you get older, that natural functional movement isn't as easy as it was when no. you were a kid. Like when you're no. a kid, like you start, oh, like you twist, it's like you break. Yeah, it's crazy how, how as we get older, we just get out of shape, man. Like our body gets all contorted, right? 100%. Yeah, it's and it, my kid's doing it, and they have that little kid strength, and he's way better than I am right now <laughs> at it. And and good on him, I'm proud of him, but uh, but I'm just keeping up at this point. Gonna kick your ass soon. Don't worry about exactly. that. So I want to talk about you start to to uh, there becomes this point in your military career. I think it's probably after the cancer where you start to have your 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 next uh, view of your 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 next chapter. There's something you said. I want to quote you because I loved it. You said. In the military, well, I'll paraphrase some of it, but I'll also quote you. you said, in the military, you guys have a terrific system and there's a lot of trust in the system, not the people necessarily. Right. And you said this, there's nothing special about the clay. It's about the molding. Yeah. That was brilliant. So you have this epiphany that you're in this terrific system and that you can take this system outside of the military. Talk about that. Yeah. So it, what it really came down to, it's, it's what we were saying earlier about how, you know, I didn't necessarily have a particular affinity towards flying airplanes. And yet I was funneled through this system that somehow spit me out as one of the top pilots in the world. And I don't say that with arrogance. I say that with amazement mm. that a system exists that can do that. Right. And so mm. after I did this, I went from driving a car to flying an airplane upside down and faster than the speed of sound in a matter of months. And you just sit back and you watch this and you say, what happened? You know, like at Christmas time, I couldn't have done this. And, and yet now I'm able to do all these amazing things. And it came down to a system and a system that that translates uh, to to other things. It, it, it really started to develop this growth mindset for me that everything we want out of life is on the other side of a system that can pull us there. And it's all about mapping that out in a very deliberate, intentional way. And so. Mm. Yeah, we and, and so it translated to business as well. That's what I think you're alluding to. Yeah, so you talk about Jim Murphy and how you got involved with Afterburner and what you guys, you know, that whole journey, what you guys are doing there. Yeah, Murph had the exact same epiphany. He was a fighter pilot in the mid-90s. He was a farm boy in Kentucky. He played on the Kentucky baseball team, and uh, they were a nationally ranked team, did phenomenally well. He got injured his senior year. He was one of the top players, and so his big dream of playing baseball went out the window. And I say all this because he didn't work hard at academics. He's a self-proclaimed C student, and, and you know that, that wasn't his forte. And, and he had a shot now at, uh, at becoming a fighter pilot. So the sports career is over. He had to figure something else out. They let him try to be a fighter pilot. He has the same revelation after he becomes a fighter pilot. He says, wow, whatever this system was, whatever this transformation that just took place, I don't fully understand it, but I'm a changed person. I can do things that I never thought I was capable of doing. I'm thinking in, in new ways. It, it's just totally unlocked something in me. And he said, I bet this translates to business because he had already been in the business world to a certain extent prior to this uh, becoming a fighter pilot. And he said, I really wish I had known this stuff when I was leading my sales team back at the company he was at. 
And so he built this company called Afterburner in the mid 90s to do just that, to translate the systems, the principles and the training capacity that the military uses for elite military teams and, and then help you translate that into a corporate setting. So is your go at Afterburner management consulting on strategy or is it specific functions within a firm? So very often we are uh, a part of go-to-market teams and very often in tech-enabled go-to-market teams. So think about tech enterprise teams, the, the big names um, in tech right now, super fast growth, very complex, changing every second. Well, what is, what is very complex and changing every second? Me as I'm going Mach 2 with 350 instruments in front of me and I'm, I'm trying to figure out what instruments to look at to keep my, my wingman safe and keep the mission on track. So we had to have a system to manage all of that. So it's a direct correlation. It translates perfectly to that world. Today, we spent a ton of time working with a $4 billion tech company building out their three-year plan to hit $20 billion in exquisite detail. And, uh, and then we help them to work backwards from that plan into what that implies they need to do this quarter to be successful. I'm going to ask you an interesting question. It's a personal question. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a business person, so I'm interested in this stuff. Yep. Is it challenging to bring military ideals and frameworks to the tech world, which you've got young techs, is there is there challenges there in terms of managing the, the variation in cultures that may exist within your philosophies and frameworks versus the innate style of tech people? And are we referring to like maybe the political incorrectness of, of bringing Not necessarily like a the political incorrectness, but my view of, of the tech world is sometimes you have young entrepreneurs or you've got a young millennial ecosystem, yep. which in, 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 again, this could be an, a false assumption. My assumption is that you've got millennial tech young and you've got Thor bringing military kind of discipline yep. uh, driven frameworks. Do you find that there can be challenges ever in, in, in managing those environments? Yep, absolutely. So the com comment we'll get very often is, you know, wh why would we bring the military in here? I don't want to stifle creativity. That's what I'm want, saying. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I don't want to have this, you know, just be crushed by structure in the military. I picture everybody marching in the same direction and, and just having a lot of bureaucracy. It, and what we tell them is this, is it's, it's about elite military teams. And why is that so important? Because elite military teams operate in a very high stakes environment. It's very complex. It's dynamic and always changing. And so there has to be a system whereby a 22 year old, because remember the average age on an aircraft carrier is about 19 years old, whereby a 19 to 22 year old can operate in this system very quickly and, and still have the autonomy and the creativity to operate within their swim lane, within their specific job. So what we teach these, these tech companies is the following. We, first of all, we say, the military may not be the first place that you'd look for some of these concepts, but let me explain to you why I think the military is, first of all, the most inclusive place I've ever worked. We worked with 25 allied countries to build a plan, right? Many of those allied countries didn't speak the same language as us. We had to use the, do, use translators to make this happen. Some of those allied countries don't even like us, right? And if we're being real honest, we're, we're only allied for a little bit of time. And yet we earn their buy-in to the plan. We earn their insights on the plan. We go out and execute against this plan in probably the most challenging environment of diverse groups you can ever imagine. And it's only because we have an inclusive process to unlock that potential of that diverse team. And we do it very quickly. And then we, we are very, very successful with that process as well. 
and, and the other thing I would tell somebody is if that's worried about, well, I don't want to add more structure and I like to, you know, I like autonomy and creativity. I, I would say, well, do you, do you really want to have your teams being creative about the processes, about the strategy? You really want your everybody on your team to have a different creative vision about the long-term success story for your company? Because we think we're, we think we are promoting creativity when we when we go hands free, right? When we just let them do what they want. That's the worst thing we can do for a team. A team is creative when you give them a track along which you need their creativity. There's a great example of this that's illustrated in a physical study. They they take kids uh, between the ages of six and twelve out to a house in the middle of nowhere, right? Picture this house with just tons of fields all around it. And they have two versions of this experiment. The first experiment is where you have just open land as far as the eye can see, and they let the kids out the front door. The next version of it is they have a fence about 100 yards away from the house, all the way around the house, but they got a fence out there. In which version do you think the kids venture further? The one with the fence or with the one with the totally open terrain? Hmm, it's interesting. I think it's, it's a trick question, Joel, but I'll say the one with the open terrain. It's the fence. And it's because when they see the fence, when there's a structure, when there's some clear guidance for how far they can go, the exploration gene kicks in because they have, they can process how, what the exploration constraints are, right? I'm going to, I'm going to explore within this region. When we don't give them those constraints, they're going to stay secure right next to the house. And they're really not going to do that much exploring. They're going to go, you know, dig in the mud at the frame of the, at the foundation of the house instead. I think it's a great analogy of how we operate in business worlds. If we tell our teams, just be creative. And we're just, a lot of times, this is the cop-out that senior leaders are using. They're saying, I don't really know what to do next. I'm sure hoping that somebody in the basement in R&D is figuring it out. So I'm not going to, if I say anything, I'm going to stifle them. And I, you know, I'm going to point them in the wrong direction. I'm just going to cross my fingers. I'm going to hire some really smart people. And I'm just going to step back and go into Operation Hope. That's a terrible idea. Operation Hope. <laughs> right? And that's the worst way to promote creativity, but it's because we're weak leaders. And that's, that's, that's where that weak leadership leads us to justify and rationalize that I'm going to give them uh, more autonomy and that's going to create more creativity. No, never works. Give them constraints, give them structure, give them a swim lane and say, be as creative as you can be down this path and they'll amaze you. It's like managing kids, right? Yeah. Like you, there's gotta be, there's gotta be a balance of free play creativity, but you've got to create the guardrails. True. Yep. Exactly. That's yeah, brilliantly said. So um, what I want to do now is start to focus on some of your philosophy and key themes that have resonated throughout your story. I always do this with guests. <clears throat> some of it's from my personal interest and some of it is what I know our audience would be interested in. So reflecting on your mortality mm -hmm. in terms of when you had cancer, now you're through the cancer now, how close do you stay to death in terms of, I'm not morbidly, but do you reflect upon it in terms of how did that whole cancer situation shape you in, I suppose, your sense of urgency or fragility of life, you, I suppose? So I often say that uh, I wouldn't go through cancer again for a million dollars. And, uh, and that price goes up as time goes on. I, I probably wouldn't go through it for $10 million now because it's been long enough and that's uh, you know, scary looking back at it. But I wouldn't give up the lessons I learned, RJ, for $100 million. And I mean that literally. I would not, if you, if you could remove them from my brain and you could give me that cash, I would not accept that money uh, because those lessons are so important. There's a phrase that resonates with me that the dying have the most to teach us about life. 
And I think that's probably true. And it makes sense to us notionally, right? We can think of dying relatives and this is the time when they, all of the noise is taken away and all of a sudden clarity is revealed and, and the priorities of, of what should be the most important to them and, and maybe what should have been most important all along. And so there's a sense of regret there for those folks as well. And so I feel like I got a very fortunate glimpse into a deathbed uh, perspective and then had that deathbed perspective taken away from me, meaning I, did, I didn't have the, the consequences of a, of a typical deathbed perspective. And so here's what I learned from it from my perspective. The, I, I look back at my life and I tell you exactly what I was happy about, what I was unhappy about. The things I was unhappy about, I'll do that first. It wasn't my failures. I would have expected, I had so many failures. I would have expected that I would have sat back and just said, oh, I got so many regrets. I didn't do this right. And I didn't do that. It really wasn't that. And it's not to say that you'll never regret the, the big failures in your life. I'm sure that we have crossroads where we will, but it, that wasn't my focal point. My focal point was on not the failures, but the times I didn't try. The times where I was had, I was presented with an opportunity and I just didn't take it because I was afraid of failing. I was afraid of what you would think about me. I, I would rather manage your perception instead of putting it out there. And now my time was up and I just didn't get another shot at it. And I had carefully manufactured this secure persona of myself that you know operated within this, this realm of what I thought I was capable of. And I had only wished that I'd done so much more and tried so many things, which of course would have incorporated a lot of failures too. But now I learned that I didn't care about the failures. Failures didn't matter at all. Who cares if you amass a thousand failures? No, he's paying attention. You talk about this concept of two groups of five reaching down and reaching up. What is this? So everybody knows the phrase, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And, and I, I couldn't agree with that more. I think you have to be very careful about who you spend time with. And, uh, and, and so I am, I pick two groups of five. One group of five during which I'm, I'm pulling down the average mentors that I can connect with and, uh, and, and they, they're helping me. They're along a path that's structured that, uh, that I can go pursue. Once again, I'm always seeking structure, the safety of structure, because I'll be creative along that swim lane that I can go find that somebody else created. And I don't have to be creative about carving the same path. I can just use their, their template. And then the other group of five is where I'm helping them and I'm, I'm pulling them up. Here's why I think it's so important. If you're only working on yourself and you're only doing self-improvement, it's kind of a fruitless journey. It almost feels a little self-serving. And at the end of the day, if you're a better athlete because of all this and you're smarter because of all of it, or you make money or more money because you had all these mentors, to what end? Like, which, is it, was it just self-serving at the end of the day? It, it, it kind of feels empty. Even though you've improved yourself and gone down this path of excellence, it, there can be a, a sentiment that it's, it's, um, it's an empty journey unless you're then able to translate that downward and, and help that next level of people up. And it's, it's a really selfless thing or selfish rather thing to do when you're helping that other group of people up, because when you're helping that other group of people, it allows you to pause and not feel the tension of always trying to exceed the next level. Cause we're never satisfied. We're always hungry for that next hill, that next mountain to climb. And it allows you to pause and take a view from where you're at right now. And as you're helping that other group of five people that hasn't been to your position yet, and they want to be there and they, and you're going to help them along this path, you get to, from your perch, kind of look down for a bit and say, wow, I've come a long ways and take a moment to reflect on that before you look back up at your group of five that's above you and you start climbing again and it gets into the arduous part. So I think it's a, a great balance of the pursuit and the hunger and all those things for your own personal excellence, but then also giving back and, and, and having an opportunity for self-reflection on how far you've come and, and making sure that you're pausing to, to check that out at every now and then as well.
I think it was a real powerful part of your story, Joel, where you where you were talking about when you got involved with uh, the community in San Antonio and the kids out there that weren't doing too well, you said it was the only time that you weren't obsessed with your own cancer, right? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I would literally forget that I had cancer. I was helping out kids that just came from extremely impoverished backgrounds um, that were just so thankful for the opportunity to see a new path and, and, and a way out of their current existence. And we're just taking action on it so quickly. So I would, I would go into these environments and we'd help these kids out for a couple of hours and we'd meet them with them on a weekly basis. And as I was doing this, I, and I'm sure I looked like a wreck, you know, I'm, I'm have chemo. The other part of having chemo is you carry around, like if it's not embarrassing enough that you're, you know, you're dying of cancer, they make you have a fanny pack uh, that has more chemo in it. So like the least fashionable thing you could ever wear uh you've got strapped to you and it makes noise in case you don't notice it it also kind of whirs and hums every uh, minute to deliver some more chemo to your body and so I'm, I'm helping these kids out at the same time where where i'm doing this and i would forget about all that all that would melt away and my self-absorption would go away because now i'm helping somebody else out and you you just can't feel sorry for yourself when you're helping another person out the three g's so that's it it's a great segue into into that concept. The, the three G's for me are growth, giving, and gratitude. Yeah. And these are the three things that the three principles I believe are most important to life at, at, at least from my journey and the, the hardship that I faced through cancer. I realized that the three things that gave me lasting happiness always fell into one of those three categories, mm -hmm. growth, giving, and gratitude. One of the things that we talked about with, we had a guest, her name is Amelia Lati. And she studied under Angela Duckworth at UPenn. Yeah, Duckworth yeah. is a great um, expert. In, and Amelia is a, a beautiful character, very feminine in certain ways, but very strong. She's Scandinavian. And uh, she's uh, studied this concept of Sisu, which is a Finnish concept. And it's like this inner fortitude. It's a cousin of grit, but not grit. And it was exemplified during a war, I think when the Finnish held off the Russians and it was some crazy conditions. And so we had her on the get uh, on the show and she talked about the concept of post traumatic growth. What is that? Yep. So post traumatic growth. Yeah, it's, it's this amazing phenomenon. We're just kind of learning about, of course, post-traumatic stress has gotten all of the press and uh, post-traumatic stress is very real. We always got to start this conversation by saying that because the, the, there are scars that we will carry from the valleys in our life that we don't have a choice whether or not we carry them, right? And so it's important to acknowledge up front that I will always have mental scars, literal physical scars from, from my cancer journey and, and other valleys in my life as well. Uh, but there's something else we can choose to embrace on the other side of those valleys. And that's this phenomenon called post-traumatic growth. What scientists are realizing in this psychological phenomenon we, we see now is because of the valleys in life, because of the clarity that's afforded from those valleys, because of the priorities that shift during the hardest moments of our life, we very often see a massive uptick in happiness and growth and potential realized on the other side of that trial. And it's something that typically doesn't go away for the rest of your life. You carry this renewed you know, fortitude into, into the next chapters of your life. 
Uh, and we saw that with the, like the greatest generation. You know, you look at uh, the generation that fought World War II and, and all the challenges that they faced and, and just massive, massive hardship with the Great Depression and everything else that was associated with it. And, and, and they yet had some of the biggest accomplishments on the other side of that and, and some of the, the, the strongest sense of community that we've ever experienced as a nation and arguably as a globe uh, from the generation that endured all that. A lot of that can be attributed to this sentiment of post-traumatic growth. It's an interesting thing when you look at the great generation in terms of their relationship to community and service. I think that, that's a key differentiator in that era opposed today to, 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 to today, right? There's something to be said about that. So I want to talk about your, your family. So one of the things we talk a lot about on this podcast is, you know, we have a lot of high achievers, uh, women, men. You know, we kick goals during the day, you know, battle scars, swords out, whatever. We go home and we're just like the regular guy, right? Having to change nappies and, you know, there's complexities that we're managing in terms of balancing everything. So I think family is very important to me. It's important to our audience. And how do you manage family when you're trying to be a superstar, you're trying to be Thor, literally, and, you know, you go home and you've got all these uh, different things that you're trying to manage in life. So one of the things I'm interested in is how the ecosystem of your family with your wife, Marsha, your son, JJ, where were you at when you guys had cancer and how has the family evolved on the back of that cancer to where you're at today? Yeah, great question. I mean, it's, it, it, cancer is a bit like COVID. I think it just accelerates whatever's behind the scenes, right? So, uh, you know, the, the, whatever environment's already present. And so it, it exaggerated for us. We, we were close before our cancer, but it, it, the cancer made us even closer. And it, it forced us to, uh, you know, figure out how to live with each other on a 24-7 basis. I was no longer going to work. Of course, JJ's home as well. Um, and it, we, it was just a great time to invest in the family and, and kind of figure out, uh, you know, how, what our last chapter, quote unquote, could look like. Because very, very strong probability that either me or JJ or both of us would be gone within the next year or two. And so we were looking at this like as our, you know, make a wish kind of time period. But that it got extended. So the way it affects my life is that I, I, I literally, in my mind, I visualize very often, almost on a daily basis, another version of myself uh, in, that's dying in a hospital bed and uh, is gasping for breath, is, weighs 80 pounds, and is having a fever dream of you and I talking of this experience that I'm having right now. Like this is the fever dream of some, you know, last gasp of a version of me that was supposed to happen with cancer. I have that, I have that visual very often. And I think that there's something that stoicism talks about where negative visualization, you're, you actually, you know, it's, it's, it's actually powerful to be pessimistic and not to constantly dwell on the negative, but to visualize the worst things happening in exquisite detail, like feel the emotional weight of that taking place. Because as quickly as you can visualize, you can also take it away and you can see all the things that you have in your life when you contrast that with those worst case scenarios. And so I mean, I'm taking a long road to this, <laughs> to this so answer. So and your question was, how has it affected our family? I truly believe that there is a, I don't call it work-life balance, I call it work-life harmony. If we pick the right jobs, then work should feel like focused play. 
You don't have to be a fighter pilot to do that. I'm doing as boring as you can think of consulting, you know, boring to another outside party. I love it. I have a blast doing it. I love transforming companies from the inside out. It's principles that I believe in. It's, you know, it's, but at face value, it may not be the thing that resonates with other people, but I love it. It's my focus play. We all need to find jobs like that. And I don't mind taking work home with me and having a hundred hour work weeks if it's involved with the type of work that, that brings me fulfillment uh, like this does. He, all that to say, I have to figure out the times to invest in my family along the way. It would be a mistake though. And I think people always make an excuse and say, well, I'm not going to do an, let's say an Ironman. You're, you're a triathlete. They'll say, I'm not going to do an Ironman because I don't want to spend that much time away from the family. Really? I mean, could you not figure out how to carve out two hours a day? Maybe you stop watching TV for, you know, for the six weeks or six months that you're going to train for this. What else could you sacrifice? There's always something else we could do, um, to, to create that work life harmony and to create both moving up at the same time and building on each other instead of feeling like it's a zero sum game. And I got to take one from one side and in order to give to the other. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. I think that, um, and it, it was always a big motivator for me to take more risk in my career. And because I innately, I innately knew that I would rather have more pressure in work, but have more control of my schedule. Yeah. Right. Because that's a trade-off, right? There's people that are desk bound and that's cool. Like they don't necessarily have the ambitions to do more, but what they need to understand is it's a trade-off. You may have, it's actually more of a grind in my view, because you have less control of your day. And I knew as a young person coming in through the business world that ultimately if I wanted that flexibility to have a family, raise a family, integrate my work, I needed to be kind of at the spearhead of the organization, right? right? Where I had that level of flexibility, but with that comes great responsibility and pressure. And I think, but it becomes easier than to integrate the two family, yeah. work, career, everything, right? hundred percent. And, and I think people don't choose that because they're worried about the, the risk, the ambiguity. We all have, uh, you know, scientists have figured out that we have a lot stronger connection to loss than we do to gain, meaning we have loss aversion. We're all scared of losing what we currently have. And what we don't realize is that the loss, you know, is short-term loss. And what's the worst case scenario? If we really spelled it out, it's not that big of a deal. And yet so many people aren't willing to risk things. They want, they'll take the security of having 100% certainty that they're going to stay right here versus taking the chance of moving up. I don't even just mean financially. I just mean with everything that they do. Um, there's, a, there's this loss aversion that takes place and another thing for us to get over. I think that is probably one of your greatest gifts that cancer gave you is you understand that loss aversion is it's it's a delusion really yeah and you innately know that and that's a competitive advantage so i think what we'll do is we'll we'll wrap it up there but before we go there's um something i want to talk about you i'm uh, talk to you about i'm the habits guy obviously so i know that a couple of your favorite books one of them is man's search for meaning by victor frankel which i highly recommend the other one is a classic uh, stephen covey on on habits now just want to know how habits play a part in your life? Like, you know, what, what's your focus when it comes to habits and how do habits interplay with the success of your day and your life? Yep. Well, you, you know, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, therefore, is a habit, as I believe Aristotle said. And so if that's the case, then we can create the success story that we want to have by just building the right habits. But the, the whole trick is in building the right habits, right? 
And so for me, I'm constantly seeking out the habits of other people that I respect. Once again, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I don't want to go figure this out on my own. I don't want to be creative about the path that a thousands others have, have done already. Let me learn from them. I'll, you know, I'll throw my creativity into something else along that path, but learn from their process and I'll, I'll just rinse and repeat it. And so in terms of habits, um, I'll just go through a couple of mine that, that are critical. Uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is one of the best books I ever read, and, and it, it does reinforce some of the key things. Seek first to understand. Always spend more time listening than you do talking. Uh, and not just listening and saying, uh-huh, but actually actively listening and think about how you would paraphrase it back to that other person. You're going to be amazed how much people like you more if you're able to do that because they see themselves reflected in you. And when you're genuinely interested in what they're saying, then it's not about you. You don't have to be amazing. You don't have to have a laundry list of accolades and things that you do well. If you're a good listener, then you're just holding up a mirror to the things that other person likes about themselves. And if you're genuine about it, it's, it's, a, it's a real connection as well. The other thing that in terms of habits, I think we're doing a great job with independent habits right now, meaning you can go on Instagram and, and go find a lot of places where you will make a better version of yourself. You go read Why We Sleep and you'll learn to rest better and you'll be more productive as an individual. You go read some of these fitness books and you're going you're gonna to be in great shape. It's never been easier to conduct self-improvement, right? It's, I mean, there are a million YouTube videos that are just spot on to improve yourself. I'm a little worried about the path we're going down as a society towards this completely independent future for each of us. I think we're missing the larger opportunity of what Covey talks about in his book of interdependence and not just building it up for you, but about what you can give to the next group and how your skills you're building today complement diverse skills and different paths that other people have taken and how we can build that story out. I'm really hopeful that that's the next iteration of all of this independent life hack uh, type conversations mm -hmm. is how we can do that as a society and a community. I've always been fascinated with the military and the ability to um, direct alpha orientated people, men and women that may be highly individualistic and performance orientated, but then how they're able to wrap that into a group performance, right? Because generally you see them moving in two different directions, but I think the military and obviously afterburn uh, adopts those principles as, okay, we, we understand the performance orientation of you as an individual, but then how do we bring that into a structure, which will then benefit the environment and the team, correct? Exactly. And, and so I'll give you a little example of the process we went through with this tech company today yeah. and how that translates from a military experience. So in the, you're exactly right. In the military world, I was in deep com competition with the people standing next to me. I mean, we were fighting for that next operational tour. Right. We're all trying to go to Top Gun. Top Gun's a real thing. You know, we're trying to go to school together. And so it's it's super competitive. And yet I would have died for that person next to me. And yet I would have, you know, every, anytime I learned something, I couldn't wait to share it with that person next to me. I would never just pursue my own individualistic path, uh, you know, to, to, and, and hold somebody else back or hope that they were held back in the process. And I'm not unique that way. Everybody felt that way. We, we just had this system where we learned as a group and you knew that it was at the end that you'd be racked and stacked and, and rated, but uh, you, you knew that the chips would fall where they needed to at that point and, and you trusted in the system. So what we do with a corporation to help build that same environment is uh, as you look at the, 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 uh, the Man's Search for Meaning book by Victor, Victor Frankl. He has a lot of commentary on the, how important it is to have your sense of why, or Simon Sinek, why. And you know, there's, there's a quote that he who has a strong enough why can overcome any how. 
and uh, by Nietzsche. And, and what that comes down to for a corporation is tell me your why. Why do you exist as a team? And I don't mean a family. I, don't, I get tired of hearing companies say, we're a family. Nah, are you really? If, I, don't, I don't believe that. You're an elite team. And if you want to be an elite team, you show up for the mission, right? And you earn your place on the team every day for that mission. That's the elite team I want to be a part of. I, I got a family already. I love them. But, you know, some of them I wouldn't have picked necessarily mm -hmm. in my big extended family. And, and this is different. This is the people we choose to spend time with. And we're choosing to spend time because we're on a mission together. But to what end? So we were working with this tech team today. They had vastly different directions for where the company was going. As we did the debriefs leading up to this, one person said, we're going to be a $20 billion company. Another person said, we're going to be $15 billion, but we're going to have 70% uh, profitability. Another person said, we're going to go down a new path with innovation. We're going to take over this market. Are these startups, Joe? Are these typically oh, startups? This is, this so is already $4 billion. Sorry? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is already $4 billion. Oh, wow. So okay. very well established. And and this is particular in tech too, because they grow so fast, mm. almost in spite of their lack of sophisticated operations <laughs> internally. And it's not a hit on them. They're, I mean, why would you slow down? You're printing money. You're doing such amazing things for your market. You, there's, the worst thing that they could hear is that now I'm going to show you how to build this operations model. They say, get out of here. We're, just, we're, we're printing money. Until they hit that roadblock. And, and now they all of a sudden need it. And then it's almost too late. And that's where we come in and we help them to recreate that foundation for this, this top heavy organization that they built uh, that, and, and build the structure along the way. Build a sense of why, build a sense of culture. Talk about what do you need? Uh, what are you going to hire for, train for, fire for? And it's not just be good and kind to people. I want you to tell me something controversial. Tell me something that, you know, do you, that will weed the garden a little bit. Not everybody's going to connect with it. I don't want to be an investment banker. That's a dog eat dog world. That's a really cutthroat environment. I'm going to work a hundred hour work weeks. There are some people that hear all of that and they're salivating. They're saying that is me. I want to go throw my hat in the ring with the best of the best. And I want to live in a tiny little apartment on wall street and, you know, walk to my place in Manhattan. That is my dream. I can't wait to do that. But you've self-selected down to that culture that that connects with that, that resonates with. That's what we need to do as leaders. As fighter pilots, we were very clear on our culture, you know, and we, we didn't care. You, if you didn't like it, go. We, we, you know, it's a very small team. You do not have to be a part of it. We have to have that mentality as corporate leaders as well. And unashamedly and unapologetically say, this is the culture that connects to the strategy and the vision and the future that we're creating. If that connects with you, join the team. We can't have, wait to have you on board. That sense of purpose and why and shared culture is what allowed us to transcend in a fighter squadron the, the competition layer. It, we all were staring at the same prize. We all had the same process to get there. We shared the same culture. And so we were an elite team that, and we were put the team first, but only because we had those other elements established. Can I ask you a question on that though? When you're styled in a management consulting, because I wholeheartedly agree with that. Like you're on the bus or you're not, right? Like either yep. get on or get off. And I would say that again, generally, certain industries and certain types of organizations would take to that. Do you find, especially in tech, I mean, I'm from the San Francisco Bay area. I know the culture, yeah, right? Like, yeah. do you, would you find that what you're saying could be controversial and deemed as politically not correct? Absolutely. And, and, and how do you deal with that then? <laughs> that's how we help the garden to weed itself in our pool of customers too. Because if, if that doesn't, if that doesn't connect with you, then we're not the group to help you make the transformation. Right.
and we fundamentally disagree on how to create elite teams. I would also caution that person and say, in all my experience, I'm going to take off my consultant hat and, and not sell to you for a second. I say, in all my experience, I've never seen a sustainable team that didn't have an emphasis on a shared sense of culture, a shared sense of vision, and make that in a way that's different from every other one, right? There's, a, there's that big... Uh, T-shirt that everybody would wear in the in the past decade. That was the Dunder Mifflin statement of values. You remember this from the show The Office? No. So it's a, it, 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 they, it was the values for this fictional company Dunder Mifflin, and they were the most cookie cutter. They, they, that was the whole point that they meant nothing. They were so they were so generic that they literally had no practical application, and you could have put any company's title at the top, and it wouldn't have mattered. That's how most groups look at their culture because they don't want to be controversial. Heaven forbid, I rock the boat. We're in this age where I'm gonna I don't want to be offensive. I'm not telling you to be offensive in the sense that all of us are going to, you know, d d you know, d racially or discriminatory or anything like that. I'm saying be offensive in the, in the sense that I don't connect with the type of culture you're creating, but I can see where that would be successful. I can see where you're taking your team and it's very clear the path that you're moving down. Yeah. So what you're saying is to create a strong culture, you have to mobilize into the same direction. But when you have a clear sense of path where you're going, it's easy to see the enemy to a degree, not the enemy, but what I mean is you get what I'm saying, right? Like when you have a mobilized culture, you're, you're moving together, you have a strong sense of us, but that then also helps you differentiate yourself from the competitors in, in your previous world, I'd suppose the enemy, right? Exactly right. The, the most agile cultures are the ones that are the most structured and focused on a common destination. So it's counterintuitive. Let's break that down a little bit. The culture that has the most agility is the one that has most clearly aligned their team to a long-term destination, to a focused strategy. That's not the hundred things we could or should do, but the three things we must do in order to pursue that, that destination and a clear connection to execution on a daily basis for that vision. That's the team that actually has the most freedom. And that's the team that you're going to have the strongest agility. Why do I say agility? Because when you're all moving in the same direction, it's like my formation of airplanes or like a flock of starlings, right? You watch a flock of starlings or birds that just all moving in the same direction, thousands at the same time. What happens when a hawk goes in that flock of starlings? As a group, that whole flock, it looks like an amoeba, like it's one living organism. They all move around it, right? Well, why are they able to do that? They're already in formation. They're already flying in the same direction. So when they encounter a threat or a challenge or an opportunity, they're able to maneuver in relation to it very, very quickly. Now contrast that with people that uh, are not going in the same direction, that don't have a common vision, that don't have a common strategy. They're just focused on their silo and they're tactically focused. That group, when they encounter a threat, throws their hands in the air and they got to, you know, land on the heroics of one or two people to try to help them navigate it. <laughs> oh, man, I love the business conversation here. Joe, we might have to do this again with a focus, <laughs> with a focus piece on, on strategy, man. So, um, look, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. I really have to say I really enjoyed your time. There was such range um, in terms of the, the personal stuff as well as the business. And I really enjoyed having you on the show, man. Seriously. Thank you, RJ. I, I'm so honored that you asked me to be on the show. I, I, you know, as I followed you and, and what you're doing, I, I have a heart for this uh, this this process that you're creating and, and the the message that you're getting out there. So really appreciate it. And tell our audience where they can find you, man. 
Yeah, check us out at afterburner.com. We have an office in Atlanta, Georgia, where we're headquartered, but we also have one in Sydney, Australia, and I've uh, been doing work around the globe for the past 26 years. Today, I'm CEO of that company. I've only been with it for the past decade, but uh, we worked with 80% of the Fortune 500 over that time frame, and uh, we're excited to help you create elite teams as well. Everyone deserves to be on an elite team, and we'll help you create that environment. All right, Joel. Thanks, man.